Welcome to Femboldened, a podcast where inspiration meets aligned action, where science meets spirit, and where you've landed to enliven the bold within you. I'm your host, Angelica Pascone, multidimensional healer and empowerment coach, specializing in helping heart-centered high achievers like you to shatter their personal and professional self-built glass ceilings. Get ready to awaken to your truest potential as we dive deep into the emboldened stories, wisdom, and medicine of our fellow impact-driven visionaries to energize you into living your bold. The only question is, are you ready? Let's get started. Them Bolden. Hello, Femboldeners, and welcome to today's episode with David Edwards. David worked his way through school, eventually achieving a BA in business and an MBA in healthcare administration. He served mostly individuals of lower income on three continents over the last 35 years and is familiar with the challenges and unfairness of life. I really can't wait to dissect this because I'm seeing it every day where I'm working now. In 2018, while working with doctors, dentists, counselors, and community health workers, he had an epiphany. The core challenge most people have to generate the personal drive to direct their own life, enduring principles to guide, and the most current science-based tools to assist them through a bumpy and messy life. Why isn't that taught in med school? His first book, Knew You, Who Knew, is an attempt to put in writing an easy-to-digest and implement guide that builds confidence, esteem, and self-compassion in balance. David, I am really excited to have this conversation today. Welcome to Femboldened. How are you today? Who are you today? What's going on in your world today? <laughs> it's, um, I don't even know where to start. It's a beautiful morning here. It's windy and cool. I'm up in the Northwest. Uh, and um you know, the seasons are definitely changing, but it's blowing about 40 miles an hour outside. I have this wonderful podcast with Angelica this morning, and I'm excited about it. And I always, I I pray uh, for love for the people that would be listening or watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can love you, whatever I say, hopefully it's the right thing. <laughs> Yeah. That's my intent. That's where I'm trying to start from. And then we have some service. There's somebody's moving into the area and I'm going to go help them do that. And my oldest daughter is with us today. So um, just for a day and her husband. And uh, so we just love seeing them. You know, they're they live a thousand miles away, so we don't see them as often. And it's going to be a full day. That is a full day. I love that word. It's a full day. Beautiful. And I feel like so many people use that word as. Uh, it's a jam-packed, it's full day. I'm not looking forward to it. There's no downtime, but a full, like a heart full day is what you just described yeah. to me. So it's beautiful. Awesome. What's the, what's the, I know this sound, this is cheesy, but what's the weather like currently for you guys? You said it was windy. Is it chilly? You know, it's funny because yesterday I left for work about 6.30 to 7 in the morning and it was snowing. Oh, so it was just barely cold enough. You know, it was like 34. Um, And then as the day went on, it got warmer and warmer. It's one of those weird, you know, like opposite days, you know, Mm -hmm. it uh, got warmer and warmer and uh, and into the evening. So it's like, I don't know exactly, but like 50 degrees and 
windy and sunny today. And it was just totally cloudy, overcast and snowing yesterday. So, you know, and then it turned into rain, you know, and it rained all day yesterday and which is good. We all need the rain. So uh, anyways, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mother nature. Is- I don't know where you are. Yeah. So I'm, I'm dialing in from New York, but not the city, the state I'm outside of Syracuse and it's been unseasonably warm this week. Okay. Like seventies, which has been really nice. Wow. My son's been playing in the sandbox. He's going to be two in just a few weeks. He's been playing in the sandbox every day and every day. I'm like, listen, as <laughs> this might be one of the last days in the sandbox, <laughs> you know? We'll enjoy it while you can, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. Mother nature is a force and, and it's, it. I think sometimes we forget that we're not, we're not separate from mother nature too. So I, I love to dive deep in what you've discovered and far as human nature is concerned. So let's take, take us back, David. Um, I, I know your story just from, from reading more about you, but, but take us back. I know 2000, it was 2018. You've had, had this epiphany and dove deep into research what, I guess, who were you 2016, 2017? What were you uncovering? What kind of things sat with you that were uncomfortable that, and, and lack of a better term, really pissed you off that drove you to, to make, make change and, and be the change in the world? Tell me, tell me everything. Wow. Well, everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's an awful lot. We'll try to give you some interesting slices, I guess. Perfect. I'll take them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting. I mean, I'll go way back very briefly, hopefully. But uh, and I'm if somebody's listening to this, you can't tell maybe. But if you're watching this, you know, I'm I'm not 18 anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, um, what's interesting, I think we discover things, you know, with time. Um, and scientists have proven this, right? Some things, I'm 62. And so some things I'm better at today than when I was 18. Some things like basketball, I was way better at. <laughs> you know, healing when you like strain something or pull something, I was way better at it back then. Um, but today, I'm much better at taking the experiences of life and trying to put them in some context because I just have more context, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to draw meaning out of it. And and hopefully, right, there's judgment in here. Applying that with some wisdom, you know, that you've gained over the years. And, and what a gift we have with people who are, you know, thinkers and writers who make these discoveries much earlier than like I have, for example, perhaps. Um, and uh, I'm just in awe of life and humanity and the variety. And uh, it's really quite amazing. But uh, I'll go way back, though. So my folks divorced when I was about 10. um, And I didn't think about it at the time, but I was quite an angry young teenager. (laughs) I would, you know, lose my temper and throw things and, you know, things that angry teenagers do. And my dear mother with three boys at home, and uh, she'd been a stay-at-home mom and uh, uh, having to work and, you know, bring in the money and raise three boys and start dating at some point. And, uh, and we were not easy on her. We loved our mother. I think all three of us um, deeply, profoundly, as, you know, children generally do. 
and she was a good person. Um, and uh, but anyways, you know, life was kind of challenging. She bring these guys home, and like we uh, we hate this guy. <laughs> Sorry, mm-hmm. mom. And it didn't matter who it was. We hated everybody. Um, but anyway, she did find a guy, uh, uh, got remarried, uh, and um, he turned out to be an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but he wasn't a mean alcoholic. You know, he was kind of an like, easygoing kind of whatever alcoholic. Um, and uh but they cared for each other. But I remember when I was like 14, my mom coming to my room. We shared a room, the three of us, like a bunk bed and another bed. And uh, and she said, we might have to leave. Mm. You know, And if I come in to the middle of the night and say, we have to leave, you have to be quiet. You don't have to worry about what you've left behind. You grab some clothes, we put them in a bag, and we're going to go. Wow. And I don't want to hear any squawking about it. And um, and that's kind of where that was. And, um, and, you know, and you're a teenager. You know, my prefrontal cortex was definitely not fully developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you deal with things as best you can. Um, but uh, my uncle, so my mother's younger brother, sent missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints over to my mom's house. Well, he had done it several times <laughs> over the years because um, he had joined that church. And he said, you know, Bev, my mom's name is Bev. He said, you'd really like this. It'd be really good for you. Ah, you know, we don't need that. And so, um, and that was all fine, right? And, uh, and so they came by <laughs> during this time period. Mm. And she and Dan, my stepdad, said, you know, we have problems. <laughs> and, you know, what do we got to lose? So they listened and they experimented. It's interesting, you know, we get ourselves into a place and we don't know how to get out of it. Mm. And so, you know, I think one of the positive things of that is sometimes it allows us to try things, right, that we maybe wouldn't have thought about or tried before. And in this case, they tried it kind of, uh, you know, like the old, I don't know, I'm getting old here, life cereal commercials. Yes. Mikey, like, Mikey likes it. He doesn't like anything, right? And then he likes it, right? So um, so they tried, and uh, it frankly, it turned their lives on. It changed mm-hmm. their lives individually. Um, it changed their relationship. Uh, it changed their focus. Um, it was a great, great blessing. and. When they decided to join that church, <laughs> I remember, you know, I was 14, um, just barely, probably 13, 14. Um, I said, that's fine for you guys. Don't talk to me about it. Don't expect me to go to church with you. Don't expect me to pray. Uh, we didn't, you know, grow up with any religion, really. Um and uh, and I wasn't interested, you know. This is not this is not me. Uh, and a year later, I joined that church, <laughs> <laughs> and it was the kind of a thing where even you know, with my undeveloped prefrontal cortex, I could not deny the change that happened in their lives, and it was positive. It was like all positive, um, and I just couldn't deny it. And so that really 
you know, at a fairly young age still. I mean, I joined that church just before I turned 16. Uh, and it changed the direction and focus of my life. I mean, very seriously. Uh, and instead of, you know, really just being focused on me, number one, and be getting rich and famous. I mean, you know, that was kind of the mantra, right? In society, if you want to be happy, like, you know, whoever, uh, then you've got to be rich and famous. And so, you know, that was kind of my mental model and, um, and you know, that very seriously changed. And there's nothing wrong with being rich and famous, but uh, uh, it's rather hollow as, you know, as you get into the lives of rich and famous people, mm -hmm. that by itself is pretty hollow unless they've built other foundations on principles that are enduring, which richness and fame are not, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, life is pretty hollow. And so really it changed my focus. Now we'll fast forward a lot of years. I, um, I was the first child to go to college. Actually, when I was 19, I served a mission for my church in Europe mm -hmm. uh, on, on my own dime. I went over for two years um, and lived very poor, <laughs> but, you know, you're living, uh, you know, seven days a week trying to be of service to other people. And, uh, it was a very transformative time period in my life. Again, um, I got home, uh, and, uh, after about four years, I was going to this college and met a girl who I fell in love with and we got married in 1985. Uh, we've been married 37 years this September. Um, and I started working in healthcare. And how did I start working in healthcare? I was making $3 an hour as an accounts payable clerk for dollar rented car in South Seattle. <laughs> and uh, an ad in the paper in the old days, we used to get out the newspaper and that's where the classified ads were. And that's how you found a boyfriend or a girlfriend sometimes. That's how you found a job. That's where you bought a car. I mean, you know, the world was in the newspaper mm -hmm. and uh, and you got your news. And so um, there was an ad for a job making $7 an hour. And mm -hmm. I thought, sign me up. Because, you know, I was paying my way through school and um, as cheap as tuition was back in those days, um, you know, it's still, everything was cheaper. So, um, and still expensive, relatively speaking. So I, I took that seven, I got that seven dollar an hour job. It turns out this little nonprofit had gotten a grant to have this position, and uh, um, I started and I ended up working there for six years. Graduated from school. They made me the business manager. Um, I did it pretty well, evidently. They made me the finance director, um, and one of the Another kind of a transformational thing. So for me, I like work. Work is important. Um, and I've always worked hard. It's just my nature. Um, and I lived in north of Seattle. And I worked south of Seattle. And if anybody's ever been to Seattle, they were competing with Los Angeles to have the worst traffic on the planet. Or maybe in America. <laughs> Uh, the planet's a little bit of a stretch there, but uh, anyways, um, and so I commuted an hour and a half if it wasn't raining each way. Mm. Uh, it could be a couple hours easily if it was raining. Um, I started working on Saturdays and I, we had just had our first child. Mm. And as I, you know, was kind of trying to put my life together in my mid 
20s here. Um, um, family was the most important thing to me. And I realized that if I'm commuting three to four hours a day and working eight or 10 hours a day or more, um, you know, I'm not home mm -hmm. and I am going to miss this child's life. And that's not okay. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I talked about it with my boss and, uh, and we couldn't really figure out an easy way around it. We didn't want to live down in that area. And, uh, because my wife had family up, anyways. Um, so I made the decision to leave. You know, it was like I could have had a career today. You know, that organization is a three hundred plus million dollar organization, and if I just stayed in that same role, because the CEO is still there, um, I talk to him about every ten years. It seems like, hey, Rahelio, how's it going? And yeah, we're doing this and we're doing that. And anyways. Um, who knows, you know, life would be quite different, but, uh, but I didn't, and, and I don't regret it because it was the right thing to do. It was consistent with my values. Mm -hmm. Um, and I found another good job, frankly, actually what I did was I found another job that I hated. <laughs> <laughs> it was closer to home. So I loved that. Right. I had, you know, less than half the commute. Um, but what I did was I had this job that, you know, I'm pretty young still. I'd really only worked at the one place, you know, as a full-time job, as a career. And uh, um, I I realized that I went to work, I don't mean to speak ill of them, but I went to work for the cable company. Mm. And, you know, the cable company was a $500 million division of a multi-billion dollar company at that time in the um the late 80s, I guess. And, uh, and I realized that, yeah, I work hard, and I don't mind that. But what I do, and what the company is all about, what their values are, and my alignment with them is as important mm. as anything else, right? It's, it's more important than what I make for a living, for sure. Um, and, and I realized that I was incompatible, right? My organization was really all about making money on cable. And, um, you know, at the end of a quarter, if we sold lots of cable subscriptions, you know, the big bosses all got bonuses and they were thrilled and bought a new Jaguar. Mm -hmm. In fact, a couple of the guys bought matching green Jaguars. And I just remember that is so not what I'm all about. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing wrong with green Jaguars, right? I don't want to speak ill of that or say yeah, that's yeah, bad yeah. if you like Jaguars, right? But it's like, that was the whole focus. And I thought, where's the meaning? Where's the value we're adding to people's lives other than, you know, 100 channels, um, which is fine again. But, you know, to me, that just wasn't, it wasn't enough. It wasn't adequate. Um, and so I went to work for a little tiny not-for-profit in Seattle that served the elderly. And again, it's just a part of this journey. I didn't plan this, right? I mean, you're just discovering. And, and I think we have to give ourselves that chance to kind of discover. And we're figuring out our own values, which frankly change and evolve over time. And that, I think, is good, right? Because that means that we're not stuck in a rut. We're growing, we're evolving, we're developing, right? And um, I and I loved working there. 
I mean, I absolutely loved working there. And there was these two women. They were super devout Catholics and big time coffee drinkers. So this is Seattle, right? If you don't have a grande latte in the morning, you know, they were dysfunctional. <laughs> I don't drink coffee at all. But uh, but we loved each other and they, they worked hard and it was very focused on the mission, right? Why do we exist? We exist to help these people's lives be better than they would be without us, right? It was really quite amazing and wonderful. And so it's kind of like the first place I worked, right? I mean, the mission was really good and really important. Um, but it's still, in the end, the situation wasn't compatible with my values. And so I had to make a change. Um, and anyway, so I worked there for a couple of years and realized as we were growing, and, I, and I, I, I'm good at help, helping companies grow and evolve and develop and, um, and, you know, go from losing money to making money. And I mean, I think the business side I've always enjoyed as well. Uh, so money is great, but only for what we can do with it, not for the sake of money itself, right? And uh, and so I like that side of things. And so I started graduate school, and and we realized that um, we didn't really want to raise our kids in Seattle. I mean, is the short version of it. Nothing wrong with Seattle, but uh, um, and I, I was still commuting, so traffic had continued to get worse and worse. And we lived in the north end, and I commuted to downtown Seattle. It was better than the south end, but uh, and we just realized we don't want to live in Seattle and don't really want to commute this much. And so we looked around and got a job in Spokane, Washington. So Spokane, for those of you who aren't blessed to know about the <laughs> Northwest Washington State, is about 300 miles east of Seattle. So Seattle's kind of on Puget Sound, beautiful area, hills and mountains and water, and really quite spectacular. Um, and you go over the Cascade Mountains through the, the central desert area where we grow tons of apples and wheat and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and Spokane is right next to the Idaho border. And so we moved to Spokane, uh, actually the second largest city in Washington state, but you know, not the metropolis area. It's like a little population in the middle of the, of the Palouse basically. And, uh, um, and I commuted was eight minutes. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I rode my bicycle to work half the time. Oh, um, and I, I got a job at the Heart Institute, which was, again, uh, losing money and failing and struggling and uh, a two-year-old startup. Uh, and we helped them turn that around and grew and evolved. And I had a marvelous 11 years there when we basically raised our children in Spokane. Um, that organization basically went away, just, you know, the evolution of business and healthcare, and um, and I could talk about that for a long time, but that would be pretty boring for most people, but uh, um, I uh, I love my time, I love the people, the mission, and we grew, you know, we tripled in size and uh, did all kinds of fun things, I like being creative, uh, and so, you know, we created, like, this insurance carve-out, and uh what we called an application service provider. I had no idea what it was. We just knew there was a need to provide an electronic health record to different mm -hmm. groups. And we had some chops, you know, I had an IT director who was pretty smart and we said, well, hey, we'll do this and we'll get this expensive one that's really good and share it. 
This is back in the mid nineties in the kind of wild and woolly days of this stuff. Uh, and uh, we, you know, grew up and we had like 200 doctors in different groups mm. and a shared, you know, electronic health record, which today is the norm. You know, you don't just buy your own thing anymore. Everything is on a subscription basis, basically your TV even. Right. And so mm -hmm. we were kind of at the leading edge of that. And that was just fun. I loved being mm -hmm. in that. I remember going to a meeting in San Jose, the first annual application service provider worldwide meeting or something. And uh, this new model, and uh, I went to a restaurant and there was a mom, I assume a mom and a dad, each on cell phones. And cell phones were really new, right? Mm -hmm. um, no smartphones. Uh, but then they had two children and each of the children were on cell phones. Oh, wow. And so like I had a cell phone because I used it at work. And so my wife didn't have a cell phone. Who needs a cell phone, right? Mm -hmm. My children didn't have cell phones. And so to me, this was right quite remarkable and I thought because I have a weird sense of humor I thought wouldn't it be hilarious if they were all talking to each other on a conference call <laughs> as they're waiting in line to get into the restaurant uh -huh. rather than turning around and talking to each other uh -huh. but today right that's the norm right yeah. everybody's on their cell phones they're not talking to each other they're texting with other people and mm -hmm. it's like wow it was prescient a sign of things to come but uh yeah Sorry, I, I, I get distracted. So I, I, I love my time. Uh, after I left, we tried to stay in town. Kids were in high school or junior high and high school. And um, I ended up working in Africa for a year in Nigeria in a healthcare project, um, which I loved that experience. Um, you know, and, and I hate to say it, but like Spokane has like 90% Caucasian people mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit of, you know, a lot of other things. And I moved to Ibadan, Nigeria, and you know it was 99% black people, <laughs> and you know the local people, Yoruba tribesmen, and uh, Igbo, and you know various you know groups, um, unique and distinct, each with centuries of history and culture, mm. which was amazing to kind of study and be a part of. And I, you can't see it, but I have. My, oh, wow. I don't know if you can see my peace mask up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nigeria, the country of Nigeria back in the day was composed of like 400 independent tribal groups, which at various times were at peace with each other. And at other times was each trying to enslave the other ones or, you know, capture their territory or, you know, things that human beings do. It doesn't matter if we're from Asia or Africa or North America or wherever we're from. Um, that seems to be the normal human condition through, you know, centuries and millennia. And uh, but anyways, this idea of the artist was, hey, we still need to get along. And some of these groups are really big. You know, they're like three or four large dominant tribal groups and three or four hundred smaller groups. Let's just get along. <laughs> and it was so it's a peace mask. I love the sentiment of it. And uh, mm -hmm. but I love my time there. They asked me to stay for a three year contract. But um, we thought about it and prayed about it. And we have blonde blue-eyed teenage girls uh, mm -hmm. and there was no like international schools or that kind of structure there and um, and uh, it was a regular occurrence uh, in the newspaper right 
we still read newspapers in the 2005, but, uh, um, you know, so-and-so gets grabbed by rebels and is held for ransom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a van full of rebels drives through the street and shoots up the neighborhood. I mean, this was like a every month at least occurrence in the newspaper. And we just couldn't get this good feeling about bringing everybody over. Um, anyways, it was an amazing time though amazing experience and all these things are formative right Mm -hmm. and so and i you know as i realized that the basic human condition in nigeria was very much like the basic human condition in europe when i was working in europe as a missionary when i was in north america working on projects in ohio or in seattle or in idaho or in alaska or you know wherever it was um, I was able to work as a tribal group. It was quite fascinating. It was a consortium of tribal governments in Alaska, in Southeast Alaska, mm. who'd come together because some of them, again, were very small. I think of my peace mask, right? There was a really big tribe in Juneau and a pretty good sized tribe in Sitka and a lot of small tribes on little mm. islands throughout Southeast Alaska. And And so they had come together and said, together, we're better off than we are apart. Uh, And there was a spirit of generosity in that as well, because the larger groups, frankly, gave up a little bit Mm -hmm. in order to provide enough substance so that the smaller groups got maybe a little more fair portion, if you will. So there is a spirit of generosity in this effort, in this movement. They created a nonprofit and they said, you know, we exist to help our populations throughout this broad area, roughly the sizes of the entire state of Florida. But it was just this little corner of Alaska because it's so stinking big. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, and I did that for about four years. And it's just an amazing experience to be a part of healthcare, you know, with the hospital and physical therapy and eyeglasses and doctors and nurses and therapists and dentists and, you know, all these things. But a, a cultural perspective, you know, that's a little unique. And I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that aspect of whole person care, you know, mm-hmm. looking at you as a whole person, um, not just your mouth or your thumb that you've injured or, you know, whatever it is, um, your anxiety that you're dealing with, right? We tend to look at you as a little piece because that's how we're trained, mm-hmm. right? And, and you're a, a health provider. I mean, you probably see this. I mean, the oncologists are looking at the cancer and they don't really care about all the other stuff. Not don't care, but you know, that's not their focus. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, this was really um, not the first time probably, but really a very distinct example of that whole person. And I really developed ideas around humanity, how complex it is but how interrelated it is through this time period. Um, And then I spent the next 10 years in Oregon developing and working on creating these models and systems of integrated care. Hmm. Um, And and that gives us to 2018. (laughs) And I I was the CEO of a rural community health center. Hmm. Um, They'd been struggling. and financially, structurally, emotionally, 
um, you know, trying to find their way. It was a group of wonderful people, very committed to the mission, very committed to their patients, and very interested in this, you know, whole person model. Mm -hmm. And we started down this journey together. And um, when I got there, I think we had about 80 employees. And when I left five years later, we had about 180. Um, We had been pretty much primary care with some dental, but kind of in their own buckets. Mm -hmm. And we had evolved our model to be fully, I think, or close to fully integrated with behavioral health, Mm. community health workers, dentists, physicians, therapists, nurses, um, health coaches, Zumba classes, um, cooking (laughs) classes, you know, uh, we started uh, as a celebration of our 30th anniversary, Gorge Happiness Month. Mm. Because the evidence is that we can strive to be happier but not by seeking happiness as an end goal, but as in aligning our lives with the principles that cause us that open up the doors to being happy. And so we, um, uh, we started the Gorge Happiness Month, which was a partnership, which, you know, in this area with like a hundred other people and organizations Mm -hmm. from massage therapists who like massage hands to uh, people who do beer, to people who, um, you know, have trinket stores, to everything under the sun, you know, hospitals and everything in between. Uh, and the idea was, um, you know, we as a community could be a little happier. And when we are a little happier, everything is better, right? The lens through which we look at life changes. And it's like being in fuzzy vision, you know, without my glasses. And all of a sudden, life is a little more clear with your glasses, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was very holistic. Um, you know, we were very much reaching out to disenfranchised groups, um, you know, trying to be inclusive, um, trying to say, you know what? I mean, I have a maybe a somewhat unique lens on diversity and inclusion um, because I don't really seek diversity, right? I don't really need to seek diversity because diversity simply exists. What I need to do, I feel like, what I seek to do is to accept you for who you are. Mm -hmm. And I have flaws, you have flaws, the problem is that sometimes, many times, our flaws are just a little different. Mm-hmm. So I will strive to recognize you as the whole person that you are and not focus on this little flaw that I see or this little difference that I see. And I would ask you to maybe do the same for me. I have differences. I have flaws. Some things aren't just flaws. They're just different. Uh, and so we accept that. We recognize that that is the nature of our existence. And then we're accepting and tolerant of each other. And then all of a sudden, you know, our lenses are clear. And then we get to know each other. Mm -hmm. Um, We moved a few years ago. My neighbor had this big Trump sign. And maybe you love Trump. I mean, I don't want to kind of focus on that, you know, as a thing. But it's an example because it can be very divisive, right? Yeah. yeah. And and so I, I am not a big Trump fan. And so... And I'm thinking, well, he's got his big like flag up, you know, Trump 20, whatever it was. And uh, 
And I thought, oh my God, he's one of one of those guys, right? So I'm mm-hmm. I'm human still. I still make those kinds of judgments. And I, you know, caught myself though. I stepped out of my system one kind of don't think thinking uh, and jumped into my system to, oh yeah, maybe I can think about this. And I would see the guy in his front yard, you know, across from my front yard. And, and I thought, well, you know, I should at least just go say hi, because you know what? I don't know him. Mm. <laughs> and so I walked over and introduced myself and we started talking. And you know what? On eight out of 10 things, we were super aligned. Mm-hmm. And we became friends and we got to know each other and, you know, we shared uh, food and I mean, it was quite delightful, but in some areas we were quite different Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know what? That's normal, right? That's okay. And so we recognized those differences, but we also recognized our commonality, our common humanity, if you will. Um, And, and we were friends and it was great. Um, So anyway, you know, just, I'm getting distracted again. So, I, I, so 2018, I'm in this organization. Um, we had you know become more sustainable financially, and we had done quite well, frankly. Um, some of that was f- because of efforts that we had made and just aligning from business principles, right, with the principles of success. Um, but at the same time, we really evolved our mental model. We revised our mission, our value our values through a very inclusive process with all of the staff. Um, We stepped out of our guild mentality so the therapists weren't in their corner and the dentist Mm. in their corner and the physicians in their corner and the, you know, other health coaches in their corner. We were all shared the same corner. Imagine that Mm -hmm. because we said when a patient comes in, they present themselves, they're a whole person. That's mm-hmm. how they're designed. It simply is how reality is. Mm-hmm. So why don't we adapt how we work to the reality of this existence and engage with them and help them as whole people? So we had really been working hard to evolve this model and make it more profound and more effective. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and we were outgrew our building. So as a CEO, I moved out of my office into a closet. And then I moved out of my closet to put three dentists in my closet. So they had a little office space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I moved out of the building finally. And so we knew we needed a new health center. And we wanted to design this health center consistent with this kind of epiphany we'd had about whole people and serving whole people and adapting us to that reality. And, uh, and I had this first of a series of epiphanies. Uh, which was, you know, we can have really, really good providers of the various services. We could have a good electronic health record. (laughs) We could build this new building that physically supports helping and engaging with whole people. We can do all these cool things. Um, But unless we help the individual patient be the captain more effectively engage with this team of people as the captain of their own life and the captain of their healthcare journey, we're going to vastly limit our effectiveness overall. Mm-hmm. And that was like my first epiphany. You can imagine that I've been working in healthcare for over 30 years 
And I finally was asking this question. <laughs> and I had this wonderful team of people, right, that I surrounded myself with. And um, and I asked them the question, right, because I'm one person. I only know what I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we started going down this road. And, and one of the therapists, they said, Dave, it's all about change. How do we manage change in our lives? And so I thought, that's to me, that was profound. I don't know if it counts as an epiphany, but perhaps. And so I started studying change models. And if you've studied change at all, right, there's the fancy word trans-theoretical model of change. And there's all these other change models. I mean, uh, influencer people wrote a book about, you know, change and took the work of brilliant people like Albert Bandura and others, and they, you know, kind of developed the model of change. But it turns out there's not a single, everybody agrees, this is the model of change. There's a bunch of theories of models of change because you know what? We're human beings and we're messy and sloppy. It's our inherent in our condition. And uh, and so what I did, because I'd been a finance guy for a long time, I built, I put a spreadsheet up and I lined up these models of change in the various stages, like the stages of change, right? So pre-contemplation, contemplation, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what's interesting? This is a little distraction again, but in every change model, there is a point where they say, yeah, I've changed, right? Who I am is different than who I was. Mm. And for some of us, that's a moment, right? Literally, this happens in a moment. And for some of us, you know, this can take years (laughs) to get there. But however long that journey is for you, right, we change. We are truly a different person. But inevitably, we fall back, mm-hmm. right? We we have that old habit, and we you know we get back into it again. Um, we fall, uh, we make a mistake, we um, go from this elevation to something that's less elevated, and uh, and every model has that built in, which I think is just very interesting because again, it's this human condition, and we're so hard on ourselves sometimes. Yeah. And so I uh, I lined them up. The other thing, this was another epiphany that really led me to go down this journey of writing the book that I wrote, um, was that at the foundation of every one of these models is this idea of intrinsic or personal motivation. Mm-hmm. So we can figure out how to do stuff all day long, right? The YouTube, <laughs> the internet is full of how do I do a podcast? How do I comb my hair? How do I do a French break? How do I fix my car? How do I find a new boyfriend? How do I, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. It's all about, most of it is about how to get things done, right? We like that. It's accomplishing. It gets things moving, It, right? And there's a place for that, right? That's absolutely right. But without motivation, we do not change. Mm-hmm. And the things that we change do not stick. And so I thought, if that's at the foundation of every good thing that we want to become the captain of our life, the captain of the change of our life, um, of how we are evolving and who we are becoming, that's worth understanding. So I kind of dove deep on, well, what is personal motivation? And, And so really, that's what my book is. It's 10 chapters. It looks at 10 principles 
And then with each of those principles, you know, I have one per chapter. I'm pretty simple-minded. Um, it says, so like the first chapter is on our values. Turns out the foundation of our intrinsic motivation is our values. And if we take a couple of hours to go through a process, that's absolutely free. Um, what we get is our values, which creates boundaries for our life. Mm -hmm. And when we align our life with those values, and we all have them, but for about 80 plus percent of us, they're just a little vague, right? Something happens, we read something, we're talking to somebody, we hear something, and we're uncomfortable. It's like, huh, you know, I'm put off by that. Why is that, right? Mm -hmm. um, what we do then in this process of making our values explicit is that we add power to our values. They become a power, a source of energy, if you will, in our life. And we have less regret. We have more focus. We have more energy. There's the, the benefits of just this one simple thing for me was quite profound. And I've been trying to live my values as I, you know, had them kind of vague, like most people, right? And I tried to align my life with them, if we will, use them to guide my life. Um, but this was really like, wow, I had no idea this was so impactful. And, and then, anyways, I spent about a year researching. I tried to start a business. Uh, it was very simple, what they call a minimally viable product in the business world. Um, and it was hosting affirmations out in the morning and in the evening. And I developed these like uh, 52 affirmations, one for each week of the year, um, consistent with these principles. But frankly, at that point, I didn't really... I don't think I really understood all of the principles really clearly. I had these ideas and, and I had developed these affirmations and I thought these will help people though, right? And I knew enough to say that in the morning, when we first get up, our mind is in a long brainwave state. Mm -hmm. And as we're relaxing in the evening to get ready for bed, we get into that same long brainwave state. When we pray, we can be in that. When we're meditating, we can be in that, right? There's different ways to get into that state. But it was very natural in the morning and the evening to be in this state. And so I thought if we can host an affirmation out, your mind is receptive. Um, that reinforces these ideas, then that's going to be a good thing for people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it has to be super cheap because it's not like a big thing but it has to be easy and it has to be um, automatic. Um, and so that's what I did. And I thought I would build that business up um, with health centers, like where I had been working for the last 10 years and where I actually started my career in 1983 at a community health center at the time, quite small and today quite large, but I think they have 50 locations up and down the West coast of Washington state. Wow. Um, and so I, uh, I went out to them, and you'll never guess the timing of this, right? Um, I started talking to people in January of 2020, <laughs> or 19. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that little thing <laughs> called COVID um, was rearing its ugly head. And all of my friends that I knew at Health Center said, Dave, that's an interesting idea. I think we could talk about that and we could do something together, but 
I am so overwhelmed with COVID. You know, I can't, I just can't. So I tried, I pivoted, you know, I tried to go direct to consumer. That didn't work out so good during the pandemic. And so I thought, I continued to read and research and write. And I thought, I got enough. I could do a book. And the principles have become so much clearer. It's a good thing I didn't try to write a book right away because just the discipline of writing and putting those things on paper and trying to, you know, really put this in a way that flowed naturally and logically. And all the 10 chapters, really, they build on each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the first principle is values. The next six principles are really about getting things done because you know what? Without getting things done, life isn't very satisfying. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like, you know, contemplating your navel and meditating. That can be really fine. But that all by itself really doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to effectiveness. It doesn't lead to the change that we really want. Mm -hmm. It's the combination of things. And so you got to be able to get things done, right? And so the next six principles, starting with awareness, Right, this idea of being self-aware and aware of what's going on around you mm-hmm. as a foundation to not just getting things done, but getting the things done that matter in your life. Mm-hmm. Because it's so easy in this day and age to be overwhelmingly busy and yet not satisfied. And it's that being rich and famous but not happy, not at peace, not satisfied, not clear about what's important to you and the direction that you want to go and who you actually want to become. And so values, getting things done, build on awareness. And then the last three principles of the book are on principles of self-compassion. Thank you, Dr. Kristen Neff and other researchers and scientists who have really uncovered these principles of self-kindness, common humanity. And my last chapter is called Mindlessness. Mm -hmm. I was watching a Dr. Phil interview, and he said, yeah, I was talking to some people, and I talked about mindfulness, and I could just see them in their physical the you know your face and your body language that they're going woo 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 crazy talk right there is a lot of people have this bias you use the word mindful and they think oh my god i have to buy yoga pants light candles and burn incense mm-hmm. and i'm not into that mm-hmm. right and so the idea that I was trying to get at this and removing barriers and kind of getting beyond our biases right was to say Do you have a mind? You do. Amazing. How are you using your mind? Mm -hmm. Scientists tell us that the human brain is the most complicated and capable creation in the entire universe. If we have that gift, every one of us, we didn't do anything. It just grew, right? It's there. If we have that gift, do we not have an obligation, a stewardship to do something with it, Mm -hmm. that is what mindfulness is. It's a recognition of what we have and that maybe we should try to use that a little better. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's really that simple. And so I'm trying to be at that level of, in a very simple way, very straightforward way, how do we become the captain of our life in a way that brings meaning, joy, that encourages that with others? So it's not just me and self-focused. It's really, as I'm evolving, I'm evolving in my ability, my capacity to connect and engage with others as well. Mm -hmm. So we have limitless richness in our lives. Um, And it's only the introduction, right? Somebody might read this and go, that's great. I've had some people in reviews say, there's nothing new in here. Probably isn't, Um, (laughs) except for my stories. You know, I mean, I don't know that anything is new, but I, I wrote the book because I haven't read anything and you don't see my bookshelf, but I've got all of my bookshelves full of books. Nobody had laid this out in a simple, approachable way. I wrote my book for just average everyday people. Um, If you are working in the front lines of life um, and you're making median or less than median income, this is the reality of our life. Um, You have to do more yourself. If Beyonce has a drug problem, she has a business manager, a coach, a whole team of therapists, you know, a a $10,000 a day clinic that would love to help her out. You know, she has lots of resources to help her overcome her problems. Mm -hmm. If she wants to make more money, you know, she can hire the best people from Harvard to help her make more money. If, you know, et cetera, et cetera, if she needs her house clean, she can hire the best housekeeper on the planet to help her do that. Mm-hmm. Right. If you make fifty thousand dollars a year and you have two children, <laughs> you know what? You got to clean the house yourself. Mm-hmm. You got to shop yourself. You got to approve yourself yourself. And you can get some help. Right. You can buy a book for 15 bucks. You can do whatever. You can do amazing things. But your life is different. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to be a little more in charge. You just can't, you know, you can't like give it up and hire somebody else to do it for you. You kind of got to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And so my hope was for this, you know, majority of people to provide this simple guide to say, hey, engage with these principles. Um, They might help you in this journey of your life. Uh, And that was my intent. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. And I, it's, it, it, thank you for sharing all of that. And I, I'd like to say as a, as a provider who I, I actually picked, I'm a physician assistant and I picked a program that promised the whole person model. And I'm sure it taught it to some capacity, but really I was, um, and I'm kind of going on a tangent here. I was extremely disappointed at their selection of future providers. And I chose not to graduate with my class because I did not want to be associated with them as a future provider. Yeah. Um, There was an inconsistency with your values, wasn't there? mm -mm. Nope. I said, I'm not going because I don't think I want to be associated with them and how they take care of other patients. Uh, But I know for me, I've taken, even, even prior to graduating from PA school, I had taken the it's just, it's just how I live my life is the whole person model. Right. And, and I, I'm not bragging when I say this, but 
my patients get better. They just do. And it's not always medication. It's not always, you know, the right diet tweaks. It's just, as you say, giving the power back to them because in, in healthcare, it's been so much of, I know what's best for you because I went to school and I hold this degree and I tell, I have to almost rewire my patient's brains and say, yeah, I went to school. I have all this knowledge, but I'm simply a medium for you to have all these options and then know what's best for you because it's your body. It's not mine. You have your experiences. I don't. So I can give you these options. I can let you know which way I'm leaning and why I can give you the side effects, but ultimately it's your decision. And I'm here to support you no matter what, if it's the wrong decision, we'll find out. And then we'll of course, correct. I mean, it's just like you said earlier, it's an experiment. Unfortunately, that's medicine is often experimentation, right? And sometimes we get it right. And sometimes we don't. Um, but I, I, I have it on my resume. My patients get better. I'm able to guide them through their self-built glass ceilings. It's just how it works. And I've only been at my, my current company for four months now. I work in psychiatry, which is extremely heavy down South yeah. too. I live in New York state, but it's in North Carolina. Cause I have my North Carolina license and I'm, I'm really amazed just how quickly my patients get better because they haven't had a provider tell them they actually know what's best for them. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we had developed, uh, and this was before I got there, actually, this organization had developed a kind of like a wellness journey. We called it Pasos a Salud. It was focused originally on a Hispanic population. And um, so steps to health, if you will, is a rough translation. And it was built on this idea that you're a whole person and you're in charge of your life. And so here's a series of tools. Some of them are behavioral, some of them are physical, some of them are dietary, some of them are physical activity, right? They're just a broad range of tools that combined will help you be the captain, right? To be in charge, expose you to some principles, to some supports, right? Um, and it was built on this idea of community education. The idea that you know yourself better than anybody else. And so we're going to try to engage in a process that is additive, but is primarily built on you unearthing and sharing your own wisdom. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully adding a little bit of additional to that, right? Not so much that it's overwhelming. And so like, if you're working with me, it it doesn't become Angelica's thing. Mm -hmm. Angelica has added this little piece to me. It helps me to be more complete and more whole. And I love this idea. We have these ideas and concepts that we're exposed to. And I love asking this question. Is this helping me Mm. to become the person that I want to be or hindering me? Mm. Right. And it could be a relationship. It could be what I'm eating. It could be substances I'm using. It could be work. It could be a mental model, a thought process, right? Uh, It could be a lot of different things, but we just ask that simple question. Is this helping me become or is it hindering me from becoming, right? And I think it's such a powerful, as we engage in awareness um, and trying to build up our own wisdom so we're more wise, in fact. Um, And as, anyways, I, I, 
it was a profound thought for me uh, and a very empowering thought, right? Because it says I can engage with my life in that way and I can make choices about my life. Some choices will be more difficult to overcome, some easier. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But I have that power. And I think that's very important for, you know, any of us to realize that we do, in fact, have that power. And just like my dad or my stepdad, right, who was a full on, you're going to get fired. You're going to lose this marriage relationship. You are going to um, ruin your life to being a person who spent his life serving others, Mm -hmm. being very happy. Uh, very content, Um, you know, I mean, he became an amazing person. (laughs) And um, because he finally gave a place for this idea that I have this behavior and it's not helping me. Mm -hmm. So how do I get the help I need to overcome that? But he finally made that choice and he got the help he needed. And, you know, the rest of his trajectory for the rest of his life for 30 years, I guess, until he passed um, was, was amazing. Um, And we all have that power. It is built in. It doesn't matter what our background is, what our education level is, Mm -hmm. what our history is, what we've done or not done our race, our gender, right? It is implicit in the human condition that we have that power. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and unfortunately, I think so many of us, especially those who are in lower income or disenfranchised communities, we're disempowered in the fact that we're conditioned. I'm saying we, because I think we're all a community here. Um, certainly, I, I was fortunate in how I was raised. Um, conditioned to believe that everybody else who has more money who has an education, who's white, has that power, who's a male, has that power, and we don't, and we'll never be able to get it. So there's almost um, a fear, right? That's, that's uh, again, conditioned is the best word, conditioned within us to not want to change, right? And and it's, it's almost easier. I mean, it, it definitely is easier not to change. And it takes, I find it often takes, especially as a private provider, it takes somebody of authority to tell you you're worth changing. You're already amazing. You just have to yeah. see it yourself. What there can you I do to show you that you know best? You know more than I do. What can you teach me? And so I'm curious to know, David, coming up with these epiphanies, developing or really putting together these steps, we can focus on communities. And there, you know, there's certainly providers that out, that have the right ideas. But how do we get this to this change to occur? Have this whole person model occur on a larger scale? What's the change that needs to happen? Especially having worked in healthcare all this time, where does yeah. it start? I believe it starts. Well, everything starts with a small group of people who are like-minded, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, every good thing, every major change, we think of the Industrial Revolution, 
And I speak a little bit unkindly in other podcasts I've done or things I've written. If you go to my LinkedIn profile, you know, you'll find some stuff I've written out there. You know, why are companies so screwed up? <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And it's built on this idea of this the Industrial Revolution and the dehumanizing mm-hmm. of human institutions and structures and mental models. Um, and along with all the good things that have happened, you know, as a result of the Industrial Revolution. But uh, the Industrial Revolution wasn't like a thing that somebody, you know, some brilliant person said, well, I think I'm going to start the Industrial Revolution and, you know, this is how it's going to go. And here's the 18 steps and blah, blah, blah. You know, this is not how it happened, right? We had needs. Human beings had needs. And some clever, creative thoughtful, hardworking people had epiphanies. And they said, hey, what if I did this and this? And all of a sudden, I got a steam engine. And a lot of things happened, you know, to get to that point. But I mean, all of a sudden, there was enough knowledge. There was enough science. There was enough drive. There was enough structure in society. It's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The right things were in place that we invented the steam engine. Mm-hmm. And wow, look at what it could do, right? And then we invented the locomotive, and then we did the cotton gin, and then we did, right? And this this snowball started because we had benefits from that. Instead of breaking my back in the cotton fields all day long and wearing my body out by the time I'm 40, I can have a cotton gin and I can take some of that labor away, right? And it's evolved over time. And then we had all these other amazing inventions. And, and, and you know, now today, wherever my phone is, you know, we have these suckers and uh, and all the cool stuff we can do on them. Uh, we can Zoom and be on podcasts. And, you know, I mean, it's really quite amazing. So it wasn't a committee. It was this evolution. Mm-hmm. But I believe what happened then was some people said, you know what? We can develop a guild. And if we develop this guild, we can organize as a group and we can take this even further than this random individual efforts. People got together and said, hey, we're going to create mutual insurance. What is mutual insurance? Well, it's where you say and I say, you know what? Individually, there are, you know, really long odds of some really bad things happening. But, you know, if I die... It would be really nice if we put some money together and then I got a chunk of that to help my surviving, you know, family um, to not be destitute the rest of their lives. Right. So we created mutual insurance. We got together, agreed to do something that we're all better off as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, we created more thoughtful forms of government, right? Like democracy. That's a clever idea. It's not just what the king wants, right? It's uh, what the group wants. And if we want to mess up our lives, we can do it collectively at least and be accountable for that. We don't get to blame everybody else. We have to be accountable. So you're right, there's these things that happen. And so I think a group of people could get together and say, you know what? These are foundational principles. And we think they're worth promoting. So if you have an idea, a business idea, an idea to help people, and if you were Apple computer, I used to say Coca-Cola. You could still say Coca-Cola. But, uh, you know, the bigger companies, if you were Microsoft or Apple or Google or whatever, right, you would do a pilot. 
-hmm. You would uh, have a study group. Um, you would test the waters. Um, you would, you know, refine and evolve what you wanted to do and what it would look like and how it meets people's needs. Um, and then you would develop a business plan, frankly. And you would say, this is to how we're going to take this from obscurity to normal, right? To the new norm. Uh, and I think what it would take is a group of thoughtful people with resources to say, you know, we want to take this from obscurity to be normal, right? We don't even have to think about our cell phones anymore. But as I noted, you know, in 1998 or whenever that was, you know, this didn't even exist. Mm -hmm. This was not even a glimmer. Um, and so how do you take that? But it met a need, didn't it? Right. Mm -hmm. This met some needs. We could do things that we couldn't do before. And I think if we could help the principles become norms throughout society, throughout all groups and you know, subgroups, disenfranchised, through, just make it the norm. That's just how we think, how we process anymore. It's a collective wisdom, if you will. Um, I think that's one way. You know, I think that's a rational way to do that. Um, and you start, you know, by putting the stuff on paper or digitally, if you want the ebook or verbally, because it's in an audio book as well, right? Whatever works for you. Um, and you get the idea there and you do podcasts and you talk about it with people and you try to um, help people have this glimmer that I have things in my life that aren't serving me well. Well, how do I change that, right? From a very rudimentary, simple, approachable level. Doesn't take over your life. It's just very simple things. And it's aligned with principles that are enduring. We could call them eternal, but, you know, um, they're enduring principles. These principles are just as powerful, just as effective for helping the human condition and human shared condition 3,000 years ago, as they are today, and they will be in 3,000 years because they're simply a part of what makes us as human beings successful. Mm -hmm. You know, your values. Socrates talked about values. Cavemen probably talked about values, <laughs> right? I mean, at some level, this is simply a part of the human condition. And what we're trying to do is say, you know, from what we know today from research, that we never have in the entire history of the human race, not with Socrates, as smart as he was, or Plato, or any of those thoughtful people, we have, you know, peer-reviewed, evidence-based research that making our values explicit will make our lives better in all of these powerful ways. Um, and was really, we live the most amazing and unprecedented time in history. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, and so I'm dribbling on. I think that's I think that's a place to start. So then that's that's perfect, and it makes it so much as as a perfectionist, it makes it so much more tangible, right? That okay, I'm actually doing everything I can, right? I don't have to influence all these people and, 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 um, get into the, the hamster wheel, if you will. So as, as a provider, and I've only been a provider for 
six years, coming on six years. Oh, past six years. I went into healthcare thinking I was going to change the world. I know the answers. I can help people. I know who I am. I know what I stand for. Right. And of course I changed, but. Thank goodness. <laughs> right. And, and I still feel that way. Right. I still have that drive. Um, and, and I'm grateful for it too, but it leads so quickly to burnout because currently the healthcare tr- structure just it, it's, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because you know better than I do, but it's very much as a, from a provider standpoint, it seems to be more business driven now than it is healthcare driven. I, I often call it, it's not my terminology. It's sick care. It's not healthcare, right? There's no preventative medicine yeah. because preventative medicine requires more than 15 to 20 minutes and providers get burned out and then you're not connecting with your patients. And then the, there, there goes the whole person model right down the drain. Right. Right. So so I guess how to cure for healthcare? Yeah, well, well, not just burnout, but <laughs> how do we fix the model that currently drives? And, and and unfortunately, that's the model that so many underserved populations are forced to go into. Yeah, you know, I'll go back to what I said a little while ago, and I know this isn't probably very satisfying. <laughs> there is no one person that can fix. Yeah. this model mm-hmm. it is going to have to evolve yeah. it does require voices right mm-hmm. so it, it might start off a few quiet voices then it becomes a low murmur then it sounds like a little bit of a crowd mm-hmm. maybe then it becomes a movement then all of a sudden it influences policy and practice Right there's I wrote a I I was on a human resources focused podcast, um, and I wrote a paper after that because it's got me thinking as you know things do in life right and so I mean I've worked in healthcare and in the business for quite a while now and and so I thought why do we have so much dysfunction in business? What's one of the reasons? There's very seldom a thing right, but what is one of those sources of of burnout, of destructiveness, frankly, to the human condition, um, to um, dysfunction. And I think it is misalignment. Mm -hmm. And so I called it alignment of the three Ps. And so in a business of any type, could be a for-profit, could be not-for-profit, government, right, as an organization of people, these are all organizations of human beings. One is alignment of principle, policy, and practice. Mm. I think that's a core thing. And if we allow ourselves to be human beings and to engage as human beings in these versions or types of collectives, right? A company, we call it, simply a collection of human beings who have come together for a common purpose. And so I think you, working with an organization, striving to live consistent with your own values as they change and evolve with tolerance and patience, kindness, self-kindness, right? All of these things, right? So as you do that, though, and you're trying to engage within the organizations, say 
let's recognize that we're a collection of human beings, first of all, and let's agree, what are the principles, right? So the principles of a company are your mission, your vision, and your values. Mm. So engage in a process around those three things as an organization. This isn't the CEO or the board saying, this is how we are, right? Because you can do that. You have the power to do that Mm. in those roles. However, how foolish to do that because it's inconsistent with the human condition, right? So what are our principles, our mission, vision, and our values? And do that in a collective, holistic, engaging process that's up, top, down, and it's bottom up. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways, well, this could be a whole new podcast, but anyways, (laughs) um, you know, um, and so I think if you do that, that's a start, right? But that's one of the three Ps. Mm-hmm. Because once you've agreed to those things, and at all levels, whether you're a medical assistant or a housekeeper or a provider of you know whatever type or the CEO or whatever your role is, right, in the organization, to me, that's much less important than that I'm fulfilling my role effectively mm-hmm. and that I'm doing that collectively as a part of a team around, you know, our mission, vision, and values consistent with those things. And that those are reflective of each individual, not perfectly right, because we're all a little different, like we talked about before. But where we can see in those principle level things, a little bit of myself, right? This is consistent with my own values, with my own purpose, with my own vision of my life and my career and how I see myself go evolving, right? Who, who I see myself becoming. And so we see this alignment. So that's the starting place. Then you've got to look at your, your policies. So what are the policies of the organization? Are they consistent with those things, right? So if you have this wonderful vaunted mission and these values, you know, that are so wonderful and amazing and they're humanistic and they're empowering and all that stuff. But then every month when you have a business meeting, all you talk about is money, you know, you've not aligned, mm-hmm. right? Money is important for what it allows us to do. Mm-hmm. So you have to set boundaries just like in everything else in life. And there's something that I've introduced at organizations called integrated strategic and financial planning. Again, that's another podcast. But uh, the idea of that is mission, vision, values is to start. That leads to strategies, which is kind of like policy. I mean, strategies are implementation of your policies. Um, And then the budget, which is the funding of your strategies, Mm -hmm. which just have to be driven by those principles, right? The, the, The first P. And so in this process, you align the policies that organization holds itself accountable to individuals and collectively. Um, And then there's the day-to-day practice. So you've got this inclusive, holistic, top P, the principles, mission, vision, and values. You've got the alignment with the strategies and the policies of the organization, you know, the employee handbook, if you will, and the, you know, the policies that we hold ourselves accountable to. And then there's the day-to-day living, right? The practices. Mm -hmm. And if the day-to-day practices are inconsistent with those first two Ps, people are going to be frustrated. They're going to, you know, it's, it's a dissonance, if you will. 
And so you align all three of those P's, and I think it can go a very long way to creating this new idea of what is an organization and how do organizations function ideally and how do we look at money, not as the end goal of have as much as possible, as in how much is enough to accomplish why we exist. You know, we all have to ask that question and answer it. How much is enough, right? And it's going to vary from place to place and person to person. But if we can do that and set those boundaries, all of a sudden, it becomes so empowering. And work and life are not inconsistent, right? And so I think by going through this foundational process, we create this alignment with these success principles, not only of business, but of human success. And when those things are aligned, there's less, nothing's perfect because we're messy and sloppy, but there's less burnout. There's less dissonance. There's less destruction of the environment, of families, of individuals, of work groups, right? I mean, it's just, and again, I don't want to paint this halcyon picture and we'll all hug and do sing kumbaya, but, but I mean, it is really a superior model. And we've gotten away from it over my career. In the late 70s, early 80s, as you look at the business literature, there was a raging debate. And we saw it alive and well in healthcare. And there was the nonprofit camp, basically, in healthcare that said, you know, um, hey, we're here, you know, mostly because of religious mission, Mm -hmm. right? Most healthcare organizations have religious roots because there's all these unmet needs and it didn't make any money. And so it became a charity. And, you know, that was the purview of largely religion. And and so religions started hospitals and sanatoriums. And, you know, there's some great books written about the history of healthcare and how it's evolved over the centuries in the West. But uh, um, um, anyways, and so um, that's kind of how it evolved. But in the 70s and 80s, some people realized, oh, my gosh. I can make money in healthcare (laughs) and I can maybe make a lot of money in healthcare. So the for-profit guys were making a lot of money and the nonprofit guys, men and women were going, wait a minute, they're eating my lunch. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what's going on here. And there was this ongoing debate about what direction do we go? And it wasn't a committee that was saying, this was the direction to go. It was just dealing with life. Right. And I think, to our own demise as a health system and as a society, the, well, the simple, easy thing, the everything is green perspective (laughs) has won out. And it doesn't matter. Uh, I was a a CFO of a heart institute that was very mission focused. Mm. Um, And, um, I was at a meeting of CFOs, a national meeting of CFOs down in Arizona. Beautiful place. I mean, it was a great meeting. Um, but I remember very clearly, it was an evening, and they were having like this discussion going on. And a CFO of a large nonprofit, religious-affiliated hospital system in Florida, who will remain nameless, 
um, and the organization Nameless, basically told a story. And he said, we discovered that if we built ambulatory surgery centers, every one of them made a lot of money. And so we just decided to build ambulatory surgery centers everywhere we could find a vacant lot. And those are my my you know words mm-hmm. uh, i mean you know th- they took their service territory and built them until it was saturated and they said well we'll start building them in other people's territory because it makes a lot of money mm-hmm. and so they had so much money and he was at a board meeting and one of the board members came up to him and said hey i'm on the governing body of this charity and we have 360 days cash on hand that's a lot of money, just in case you don't realize that. Um, and he said, how much is enough? And the CFO responded, well, it's never enough. Mm. And so to me, that was like, oh, my gosh. A, you are patently, scientifically, quantifiably wrong and in error. There is enough. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Uh, and But it was this. To me, it was, you know, around the turn of the century, it was this kind of clarity that especially in large healthcare, the humanistic side is lost. Mm-hmm. And um, and clearly that is more the case today than ever. But there's glimmers of hope. There are glimmers of hope. Um, there's this group called B Corporations. Mm. And you can look it up, you know, Google it, B Corporation. And what these people have said, you know what? The evolution of companies has created all this destruction in society and dissonance. Uh, and that's not okay. And we can make the decision to do something different. You know, it started with a few people in a room who had gotten together and said, what are our values, right? What are the principles that we've got our lives by? And how am I running my business? And this is enough of a disconnect that I'm not comfortable with it, right? Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, what could we do that's different? And so they said, you know, over a period of time, well, we have these principles, right? This alignment of our three Ps. At the principle level, we think a business is more than just maximizing profit money is important for what we can do with it and i want to make a good living i want to be quote unquote well off good for us but it's not like why i exist and so they created this concept around b corporations and today there are several thousand b corporations and they go through an accreditation process, kind of like in healthcare. Um, and this is any business. So this could be a healthcare business. It could be whatever. Um, but they're for-profit businesses who've simply said, I have more stakeholders than the shareholders. And so I have to pay attention to my employees and mm. what's their life like. I have to pay attention to the environment and what I'm doing to it. I have to pay attention to my community in which I am working. Mm-hmm. And my influence, you know, on that community. Not, and I have to make a profit too, right? I have to make a living. And, but I'm going to do these things in balance. And wasn't that shocking that we have to create a B corporation to think that I can run my business in balance instead of just to maximize profits for a few people? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see these glimmers of hope. I think they're there. Mm-hmm. And for each of us, it's about, Understanding myself at first, right? Going through that discovery process, those your values, your awareness, 
your vision of what you want to do and who you want to become, mm-hmm. becoming more effective and actually carrying that out and doing that in a way that is consistent with human principles and human connectedness, right? And then getting together with like-minded people. And if we can do enough for that and people say, wow, they both make a good living and they do all these good things and there's this alignment and there's less destruction, there's less dissonance, they're happier, they're whole people. I think this can spread. Mm-hmm. And at some point, enough of us will be asking the question. Then you get people into positions of power who are in this kind of school and they go, wow, we can change the world for the better. What do you, we think about this, right? And it becomes a, a more overt, a more uh, intentional discussion at a larger scale. Uh, and, and I think that would be a beautiful thing for us. And I think it'll happen. I'm getting a little older. It may not happen in my lifetime, but, you know, perhaps in yours. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's incredibly validating. I'm over here, like, smiling ear to ear, not only because of the glimmers of hope, um, but because that same thing, I, I, you know, I'm putting the pieces together myself. That same thing happened to me. And I can be pr- proud of myself instead of feeling like I failed. So I started my own business doing the same, you know, focusing on the whole person and, and doing coaching world, but using my intuitive gifts. And I, I hit this, this point where I realized it wasn't working for me because I, I didn't like having to go on social media. I didn't like having to market myself. And the more I realized it, the more I thought, well, I kind of adopted principles and business strategies, because that's what my business coaches taught me to do. But actually, I don't agree with them. I don't agree with not giving somebody a refund if they didn't get what they needed out of it. I don't agree with giving people advice and not having a therapist on call to talk it through with them, because there is crap that I could bring up that are, is potentially damaging, and that's not trauma-informed. So I yeah. actually took a step back. And now as you're speaking, I'm like, I took a step back correctly. Because I actually built a business that wasn't aligned with my values. And that's why it wasn't selling. There you go. See, that's so beautiful. That alignment, isn't that Mm -hmm. a powerful, powerful concept? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I knew in order for me to run my business the way that felt good for me, I needed to fund it first and foremost, right? I couldn't just build it from nothing and still have my values. That's just not how it was going to work for me. It could work for somebody else for sure, but it wasn't going to yeah. work for me. So, um, yeah. So your 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 experience, your wisdom, um, really just listening to you has been incredibly validating and given me hope for the future. So I, I can't thank you enough, David. This has been an incredible conversation and discussion and and really um, chock full of, of guidance and implementation and strategy. And I'm just so glad you were here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Where can people find you if they want to be more in your energy? Where can they find your book so they can grab yeah. a copy themselves? It looks like this. I don't know if you can see that, but perfect. Yeah. Um, I am on davidredwards.com. <laughs> That's my <laughs> website. It's just my name. Um, and uh, I am on LinkedIn and I'm on Facebook. And I think those are the simplest places. You know, I have my book is on Amazon. 
And again, it's on a paperback. Um, I didn't do a hardbound just because it's, it's less affordable. My intent was to try to make it as affordable as I could. It's on an ebook, which is even more affordable. Um, and it is an audiobook as well. And that's on Amazon, Audible, and uh, iTunes. Um, and I'm trying to get my book in Barnes and Noble. Yeah. And in libraries, um, that's a process to do that, but um, I'm working on that. Oh, that's beautiful. Awesome, David. I'm so glad that you're here today. Thank you for being here and being you and living out your life mission-based and impact-driven. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. I wish you well and everybody listening and watching. Um I hope you have that glimmer of hope too. Your life is important. It really is. Wherever you find yourself, give yourself a break <laughs> and hang in there. You have power. Mm-hmm.